Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. My name is John Sean. I'm the director of the Institute. In April of last year, when it became clear that the pandemic would indefinitely alter our lives, we launched a virtual conversation series called Understanding Our New World. Hour-long conversations with leaders in government, diplomacy, academia, philanthropy, the military, and other professions. Our conversations have been respectful, civil, and probing, the kind of conversations that our founder, Paul Simon, relished. We also host two other conversation series, Meet the Mayor, in which we talk with Illinois mayors about their careers and their city's challenges and opportunities, and Illinois authors, in which we sit down with Illinois authors and hear about the Prairie State and bring the Prairie State to life. We typically host these conversations live over Zoom. In this podcast, we want to share these wide-ranging civil conversations with you. For more information about the Institute and SimonCast, please visit paulsimoninstitute.org. And today we're delighted to be joined by Illinois State Representative Jennifer Gong-Gershowitz. Uh, Jennifer is from Oak Park, Illinois. Um, she uh, went to Indiana University, uh, went to law school at Loyola, uh, uh, went to, actually got a master's degree in international law from Northwestern, uh, began her career at Winston Strawn, an important firm in Chicago, and then has moved into some really interesting areas in human rights and immigration law, including the National Immigrant Justice Center and the Northern Suburban Legal Aid Clinic, where she built their uh, immigration practice. She ran for the Illinois General Assembly, Assembly, the 17th District in 2018, won, and has done some amazing work in Springfield. She chairs a new committee, relatively new committee called Immigration and Human Rights. We want to hear a lot about that. And Jennifer really won national attention this spring by helping push through the General Assembly, the first law in the country that requires the teaching of Asian American history in public and elementary, public elementary and, and high schools in Illinois. So we want to get the, kind of the backstory on that new law, really important law, and just some of the, both the opportunities and challenges of implementation. And the representative is joining us from her home in Glenview, Illinois. So good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Great to be with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. You, you, you grew up in, in Oak Park, and I, I looked at your website, and you, you talk about you know, growing up. Your, your dad was a veteran who was active in civil rights issues. Your mom was a very active in the uh, Equal Rights Amendment push. In fact, you have a wonderful photograph of your mom <laughs> driving a bike in a parade, and you're kind of perched precariously on the, uh, the front of it as you are uh, going through uh, the parade. So tell us about the, the early years growing up, the influence of your parents, schooling, and so forth. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Oak Park, uh, which, um, you know, is a reputation for being um, a progressive community, a diverse community. And my parents are both transplants from the West Coast. Um, my mom uh, grew up in California. And my father, uh, the son of Chinese immigrants, grew up in Portland. And I think in many respects, um, meeting in, in California at UCLA in the 1960s, um, they were very much uh, influenced by the time, um, as well as their, their family backgrounds. My mom, uh, from a white working class family, the first in her family ever to go to college, um, my father, the son of uh, Chinese immigrants, uh, the youngest of five children, um, I think very much wanted to escape the constraints both of uh, family and, and community that they found confining in many ways. Um, coming to Chicago and discovering the Midwest to be a little less open-minded 
um, than they had expected, I think. Um, having a hard time finding a place as a biracial couple, um, well, a mixed race couple, um, to, uh, to live and found themselves uh, running an apartment on the west side of Chicago in the Austin neighborhood, which is where I was born. Um, and then ultimately buying a house in, in Oak Park. My dad uh, was a community college teacher and art historian at Triton College. And, um, and I grew up in Oak Park and found um, oftentimes that what people say and what they do in practice to be very different. Um, growing up, I, you know, I'm obviously a you know, biracial, um, half Chinese, half white. And um, I really struggled, I think, with both, you know, a sense of, you know, internal and external identity. Um, and I didn't know what to, to make of all of that until much later in my life. And, and I hope we have a, a chance to talk about sort of that uh, journey to really discovering my own family's history um, and connecting that experience to my own life experience growing up in Oak Park, where the Asian American experience was invisible. Um, and of course, Asian Americans have a long history of invisibility and exclusion. Um, but I don't recall any attempt whatsoever uh, throughout my K through 12 education to talk about the Asian American experience, um, to give either Asians or non-Asian students any sense for the Asian American experience, which of course is part of American history. And so it was not until law school um, that I was studying the immigration laws, uh, started to learn about uh, the history of exclusion acts, which targeted Chinese Americans, that my own family's told history didn't add up to the realities of the timeline of immigration law and how that impacted Asian Americans in this country, which led me to ask a lot of questions and ultimately led me to journey to Portland, Oregon, to discover the truth about my own family's immigration experience. But growing up in Oak Park gave me, I think, um, at least a window into the complexities of um, race in America um, and the, the work in progress that we um, are all experiencing, I think, um, and having important conversations now looking back over some of those experiences um, have been instructive in my work in the General Assembly. Well, tell us a little bit about your Indiana University years, what you studied, and then and then from there transition to Loyola, which is, I think, where you really had this kind of academic um, encounter with, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and how that connected to your own family. So if you could maybe start at Indiana and then go to your Loyola time. Sure. Um, so I was a journalism major at Indiana University. Um, I have always enjoyed uh, the spoken word and um, very much uh, enjoyed, you know, learning about um, how to investigate research and, and convey um, information in the School of Journalism. But what really sparked my uh, my interest the most was my course on First Amendment law. So um, I still remember the classroom. I remember the professor. You know, it's, it's funny when you have those aha moments in life, you know, something about your educational experience that, that changes 
um, what you're, you know, what, what you, you know, pursue later on in life. And for me, that was a First Amendment law course. And it was, of course, in the context of the School of Journalism, relevant to journalists uh, working, um, you know, of course, uh, you know, and needing to understand the laws around free speech. But what I was fascinated about was the impact of the rule of law in shaping policy. And the, the ability of uh, lawyers to create change and, and make a difference, um, utilizing you know, the tools um, that lawyers use um, to both advance public policy and to represent and advocate for their clients. And so it was really that course in First Amendment law in the journalism school that sparked my interest in going to law school. Um, my parents were very generous in, in providing me with a, uh, an undergraduate degree and, and paid for my, uh, my studies at Indiana. But law school you know, was gonna be something that I was gonna have to undertake on my own. Um, so I spent a few years working and, and saving money and I started at uh, Loyola Law School really you know, wanting um, and, and enjoying the, every single course and the opportunity um, to put into context not only um, the Constitution and our founding values, but how those evolve, have evolved over practice um, and over time to reflect the way that the next generation interprets those principles, right? Um, I lo absolutely loved my experience in law school and had the opportunity to compete nationally in moot court competitions. Um, competed in the Thomas Tang National Moot Court Competition, which was uh, designed to give Asian American lawyers an opportunity um, to compete with other Asian American uh, law students around the country, won nationals, um, and, uh, and then went on to Winston and Strawn. But it was really at Loyola um, that I connected both my study of law um, my knowledge of and my what I then discovered was my limited knowledge of U.S. and and Asian American history to my own family's experience, um, because it was in an immigration law course um, that we studied um, the Chinese Exclusion Acts, and I learned for the first time that it was not until uh, 1952 that Asians were able to naturalize as US citizens. And it wasn't, and it wasn't until 1943 that the Chinese Exclusion Acts were ultimately repealed. I knew that my grandparents came to the United States in the 1920s. And I had been told the fairy tale version of the immigrant story. You know, grandparents came, started a business, raised five children, all went to college, um, became doctors, professors, um, musicians, artists, but it wasn't adding up. And when I started talking and asking questions, um, I learned that my family had been subject to deportation proceedings under the Chinese Exclusion Acts and had fought their deportation for over a decade with the help of a civil rights attorney named Irv Goodman, who was a celebrated civil rights lawyer in Portland. And I traveled to Portland and I did my own research looking at the microfilm of the uh, news coverage at the time, using some of that journalism background that I got in Indiana, um, sitting in the libraries and pulling news coverage of my family's immigration case to learn more. I then sought out the only living relative of the attorney who had represented my family. And I had this amazing moment where I got to meet her and she gave me 
uh, traditional Chinese garment that my grandparents had given to her brother-in-law as a thank you for the years that he dedicated his life to championing the civil rights of my grandparents. Um, I wore that, uh, pieces of that garment on the day that the Teach Act was signed. Um, but it was really that that inspired not only my curiosity about my own family's experience, but then the ability of lawyers to make a difference, um, to use that training uh, to pay it forward and do that for somebody else. And so uh, when I graduated from Loyola, I went on to Winston and Strawn. Um, and my practice was not an immigration practice at Winston. I was in the litigation department uh, doing predominantly securities and exchange litigation. And the firm at that time did not do any pro bono immigration work at all. Um, so I asked whether or not I might foray the firm into doing some pro bono immigration work um, and uh, found somebody to, to, uh, to support and sponsor my doing so. And I teamed up with the National Immigrant Justice Center and ended up uh, taking on the first ever trafficking case in immigration court in Illinois. Um, and back in uh, the late 1990s, there was no precedent for trafficking as a grounds for asylum. It was not a recognized grounds for persecution. There was no TV suffer victims of trafficking. And I quickly realized, you know, through uh, the lens of, of what I had learned from my mother, who uh, raised me to challenge um, the gender-based norms that her generation had grown up um, with. And, and recognized immediately that the law reflected a lot of those same attitudes and notions about women and um, more by omission. So the definition of persecution omitted the kinds of harms that happened to women in the world, um, forced marriage and, and other harms that we now recognize in the human rights space as being a violation of a woman's fundamental rights were not recognized as grounds for asylum. And so uh, I set out to change that, taking on gender-based persecution cases, and along the way, finding both legal and procedural hurdles. Um, for example, in the case involving the child who had been trafficked, there was no mechanism um, for me to be appointed as her attorney. And the traffickers had already hired a lawyer to get her out of custody. Um, and so I, I searched through the federal rules of procedure at the time and created a motion to appoint a guardian ad litem, uh, which became then a model for how we would handle cases involving unaccompanied immigrant children. To appoint a guardian ad litem, um, a pro bono social worker, not to uh, act as the attorney for the child, but to act in the child's best interests. So that if you had a situation where there, the legal decisions might be at odds with um, what uh, somebody standing in, in the role of a parent might think was the child's best interest, you had somebody advancing that uh, aspect of, of uh, that need to protect the child. Um, and it was really that case um, that, that took tremendous resources, the resources of a large law firm like Winston and Strawn, and um, a lawyer who didn't know the word no, <laughs> um, to carve out and win the first cat trafficking case in Illinois um, in immigration court. 
And then I went on from there to take on other cases of first impression, gender-based persecution cases, again, focused on this issue that our immigration law and human rights law in general, both here in the US and internationally, did not recognize the kinds of harm that happened to women. Um, I focused on gender-based persecution. And then I got curious about how US civil rights law um, applied in the context of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which of course evolved in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, recognizing for the first time in human history, a universal set of human rights norms. And I wanted to study more about that. And so I, I went on to Northwestern becoming the first American to graduate with a degree in international human rights law from Northwestern Law School, published on gendered war crimes, and really, you know, learn the power of my own voice, uh, the power of one, I say, you know, the power of one person to change the trajectory on an issue. Um, and so after, you know, I, I had been at, at Northwestern and, and um, had the opportunity to um, broaden uh, my understanding of, of U.S immigration and human rights law in the context of the larger um, debate and discussion on international human rights um, that had been codified in an international human rights framework and the aftermath of the Second World War, um, went on to uh, build the immigration practice at the North Suburban Legal Aid Clinic. Um, and it's interesting because I, you know, as I look back on my career, I think there are many instances uh, throughout my life where um, the best uh, metaphor for what I've been doing is sort of building the plane while I fly. <laughs> um, you know, the North Suburban Legal Aid Clinic at the time had a, a shoestring budget, um, too small to obtain any state or federal funding for the kind of work we were doing. And um, then in the midst of my building that practice, Donald Trump was elected to the, be the president of the United States on an anti-immigrant platform that was anathema to everything that I believe um, this nation ought to stand for. And so uh, in 2018, when my dear friend Laura Fine um, was stepping uh, out of her seat to run for uh, the Illinois State Senate, um, I threw my hat in the ring to, uh, to run for a seat in the Illinois House, becoming only the second Asian American to ever be elected to the Illinois General Assembly. Um, and, and I think this last year shows how much representation matters, um, that it took, uh, you know, finally having Asian Americans in the General Assembly um, to focus on um, what has been long overdue and missing in our classrooms. Um, really exciting to have been a part of a coalition. Um, and this really was a coalition effort involving grassroots organizations from Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, um, my colleague in the Senate, um, my colleagues in the House. Um, it was a heavy lift and one that when we set out to do it um, seemed like a long shot, frankly. Um, but I, you know, as a student of immigration law, I have long, you know, noticed um, the parallel between immigration law and policy. Um, and the social status of Asian Americans in this country, which has always been perilous. And uh, you, you, know, you don't need any more than the last year and a half to know that uh, the model minority myth can flip back to those uh, stereotypes of the dangerous minority and the scapegoat on a dime. And so education, in my view, is the best weapon against ignorance. And um, 
you know, that is, has led to uh, what I hope will be changed for the next generation. Well, let's, I want to dive into that in just a second, but let's maybe get some of your, just your overall impressions of how Springfield works. Uh, and I've talked to some legislators, in fact, uh, Teresa Ma, just uh, within the last year or so, who was saying that in Springfield, I mean, there is the big kind of epic battles on budget and taxes, but below that kind of top tier issues, there's a lot more cooperation and collegiality on other issues. Is that your experience? Absolutely, 100%. Um, I think people are always surprised to find that um, inside the bubble, we all know each other rather well. Um, we spend a lot of time together, a lot of hours in Springfield, um, both on the floor and off the floor, and you get to know your colleagues as human beings, um, which you know I think is is a key, you know, to asking the right questions, you know, developing relationships. Um, that was certainly the case with the Teach Act. Um, you know, there were certainly, uh, you know, some detractors, but um, not hateful. And the bill passed with broad bipartisan majority support. And I think, you know, when I talk to legislators around the country, that comes as a surprise to people. Um, but I, you know, I think the first step in creating change is always um, being willing to ask the hard questions, being willing to talk to people who might come from a different life experience. You know, every one of us, whether we come from um, a progressive town like Oak Park or a small town in Illinois, we come at the world for, with, you know, biases from our own life's experience. And um, I think in some ways, uh, you know, the, the most dangerous thing is to think that you are not, you know, that, that you don't come at, at a problem, you know, with your own point of view, your own life experiences. Um, but what I've found incredibly gratifying is the willingness of my colleagues from all different walks of life, from vastly different backgrounds, um, to ask the, the, the hard questions. And if you can change hearts and minds in the General Assembly, um, maybe we got a shot at doing it right in the, in, in the out there in the world. And um, I'm incredibly proud of what we've accomplished here in Illinois. I think a lot of people expect those kinds of things to come from the coasts. Um, given the, you know, the size of the Asian American population in California, I frankly didn't realize that they hadn't passed a bill like this. It wasn't until we started working on the bill and I thought there's no model for this anywhere. Um, and it took Illinois um, to get across the finish line uh, on Asian American history first. And uh, hopefully we'll see it in other states. But yes, my experience in the General Assembly um, is, is very collegial. Um, I think there are you know, uh, relatively few issues um, where we are just you know, diametrically opposed and, and where you're just not gonna find middle ground. And I'm a realist, you know, we certainly have some of those, but the vast majority of issues um, and certainly policy is always better um, when you have uh, you know, the opportunity to hear other perspectives and, and to have um, people from a different life experience weigh in on you know, arriving at the best solution. Well, let's talk about the genesis of the TEACH Act. And um, as I understand you know, through reading is that you know, there's early 2020, of course, you know, with COVID exploding, you know, one of the really awful aspects was an, off, an upsurge in anti-Asian American um, uh, threats, et cetera. And, and I know there was a coal, uh, coalition that built 
in Illinois. I think there was a group in Chicago, the um, uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, that was was has worked closely with you. So tell us a little bit about the kind of the, the the formation of this coalition and what you're trying to accomplish as you began work. Yeah, so um, you know the idea for a bill on Asian American history um, was uh, one that that came to my attention from Andy Kang at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, and uh, I'm not sure exactly you know if the genesis of it. Um, you know, came from uh, some of the work that had been done on the PBS documentary, Asian Americans. Um, but the, the, you know, the timing and, and the focus, uh, you know, of the Asian American community on um, trying to end the invisibility and exclusion of Asian Americans in curriculum, in media. Um, my cousin, Stephen Gong, actually works uh, for the Center for Asian American Media out in San Francisco and has been working for decades on um, you know, efforts to make Asian Americans more visible and more and, and less caricatured, you know, frankly, in media. Um, and so that that work has been ongoing. Um, sadly, I think it took the scapegoating, um, once again, of Asian Americans, in this case, for the pandemic, and the rise in anti-Asian hate and violence culminating in, in what we saw in Atlanta in a mass shooting to really develop the momentum and the political will to really, really do something big. Um, curriculum mandates are very difficult. Um, they're uh, tough to pass even in a, in a very blue state like Illinois. Um, you know, this was not, you know, I was, I did not take for granted uh, that colleagues of mine on, on the Democratic side of the aisle would necessarily support a curriculum mandate on Asian American history. Um, but I, I think in the wake of um, the obvious xenophobia and rise in hate, um, the, the call to do something about it um, became too large to ignore. Um, and, you know, despite having um, no Republican support for the bill in committee, by the time that bill got to the House floor, um, we had had the opportunity to really have some in-depth conversations about the necessity for filling that gap um, in our curriculum with uh, knowledge and information that, you know, frankly, has been long overdue and missing in our classrooms. And it seems that the thrust of the educational experience that you want is both to tell Americans about some of the really horrible things and prejudices that have existed, but also to highlight the achievements of this community, which is a part that maybe is oftentimes neglected. Talk about both aspects of that. Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised um, to learn, uh, you know, that Asian Americans were considered um, uh, you know, um, undesirable, irre irrevocably foreign, and uh, were not uh, allowed to achieve citizenship through naturalization until 1952. Um, you know, but, you know, setting aside, um, you know, the, the trajectory of, um, immigration law that can really be seen in two parts. So um, pre-1965 and post-1965. So before 1965, um, I call that the exclusion era. Um, a series of laws from you know, 1790 um, through the, the Exclusion Acts and, and beyond 
um, created a, you know, a category for Asian Americans that left Asian Americans as excludable aliens, which is a concept that is still foundational in our immigration law today. Um, but before the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, um, the kinds of stereotypes that drove the Asian American experience were negative ones. Um, you know, Asian Americans were bad, foreign, the yellow invasion, and our immigration laws absolutely reflected a desire um, to exclude and um, to prevent Asian Americans from achieving citizenship, from becoming um, Americans. And yet, we were here, you know, Asian Americans have been here since the 1500s. The first Asian Americans arrived prior to English colonization. You know, Filipino Americans um, built a community in what is now Louisiana in, in the early 1500s. And many Asian American families can trace uh, their roots here in the United States back six generations. Um, so far from the, you know, this, the, you know, this idea of Asian Americans as the new foreigner, Asian Americans have been part of American history for hundreds of years. Um, it was actually uh, in, a, in a case 70 years before Brown versus Board of Education, um, in the case of Tate versus Hurley, where an Asian American family sued to desegregate California schools successfully. It was a case brought by a Chinese American that established the principle of birthright citizenship, um, and, you know, that is now, of course, embodied in the 14th Amendment. Um, the, uh, you know, the first female gunnery sergeant in the U.S. Navy is a Korean American named Susan Ann Cuddy. Um, the Asian Americans have played critical roles in the fight for civil rights. Um, you know, so uh, Larry Itleon, you know, is one example. Um, uh, his work with uh, Cesar Chavez um, in organizing Filipino farm workers. Um, you know, Asian Americans have been part of the fabric of American history. Um, and, you know, when you look at, at uh, textbooks, you know, you might see a reference to Japanese internment, which is, of course, um, a devastating example of, um, you know, the, the power of law to, um, you know, to, to segregate um, and, and racialize. Um, but there are, are plenty of examples of Asian Americans as change agents, and yet that story isn't told either. And so um, what's critically important to this coalition, and um, no bill gets passed um, by one person, you know, it is a coalition effort that involves many people um, and organizations, is that um, moving forward, we tell the story of Asian Americans um, not just from a perspective of um, exclusion and invisibility, but also in terms of um, our own agency around change um, and the critical role that Asian Americans have played in the fight for civil rights um, and in uh, you know, the fabric of, of American history. Um, and it's interesting, you know, it's as I, you know, see how fragile, you know, Asian American stereotypes often are, um, you can, you know, like I said, really trace uh, the shift in attitudes towards Asian Americans to the utility of the, uh, you know, of, of those stereotypes um, based on the time. So, you know, before 1965, um, the laws very much tracked, you know, Asian Americans um, as an, you know, a, an undesirable, um, as a uh, excludable, um, 
race of people. And then uh, post-1965, and with the passage of the um, Immigration and Nationality Act, our focus in the U.S. on immigration shifted to one, uh, family reunification, um, and also uh, a large percentage of visas set aside for skilled workers. Um, interestingly, the proponents of family reunification back in 1965 assumed uh, that that would ensure the predominance of European immigration, because at the time, 85% uh, of the United States was white. Um, but they, you know, the, the impact of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act was that 20% of visas that were set aside for skilled workers. So subsequent to 1965, the vast majority of Asian immigrants come in, uh, you know, through that skilled, you know, category, often already wealthy, already educated, and that has fed a model minority myth which of course, you know, the model minority myth, you know, which I, you know, you know, describes Asians as, you know, overachieving, you know, good at math is driven as a foregone conclusion by our immigration policies. Um, the 1990 uh, Immigration Act, uh, which established the H-1B visa, which brought in uh, more workers, uh, you know, often Asians uh, to work in the computer industry, science, technology, again, reinforcing this model minority myth, this idea of, of Asian Americans as good at math, you know, good at science, very studious. And of course, that serves a certain purpose as well. Um, that model minority myth is used to success shame other racial minorities. Um, and it's, it's used to validate, you know, American meritocracy. But it's policy and it's immigration policy that has driven and reinforced the model minority myth with the vast majority of Asian Americans immigrating through those preference-based categories for skilled workers. Um, so, uh, you know, it's always been uh, interesting to me as a student of immigration law to see the parallels um, between the biases um, that lawmakers hold um, that drive policy that then have a profound impact on the social status of certain racial minority groups. Um, and Asian Americans' uh, social status in this country has been precarious at best. And, um, you know, this last year, I think, has, has proven that. I mean, the, the stereotype of the model minority flipped on a dime um, once it was politically advantageous to scapegoat Asian Americans um, as the foreigner, as, um, you know, uh, the, the cause for the pandemic. And, of course, uh, violence and um, uh, xenophobia ensued. And I think, um, you know, the TEACH Act um, is, is one tool that we have in the toolbox um, to fill those gaps in knowledge um, with information and to see um, our history comprehensively in a way that I think benefits us all. You know, I've often said, um, you can't possibly hope to understand the present without understanding your past. And how can you ever hope to do better for the future unless you take very seriously the duty and obligation to look at our policies um, and ensure that, um, you know, we do all that we can to undo the harm um, that has ensued from either overt or implicit racial bias 
in our policies, laws, and systems. I mean, I feel um, very much duty-bound as a legislator to do exactly that. Well, let's talk about implementing the law, because I think you and others have said that will be a challenge. Um, school districts are allowed uh, the, 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 the leeway to implement it as they will, and stipulating the goodwill of everyone. Let's do that. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge for some school districts. And I know the law re- refers to this PBS series, which was, a, I've seen just p- parts of it. It's amazing. There's a whole instructional component, at, I think a 30, uh, 30 lesson plan that follows from that. So, I mean, what are the mechanics of how this is implemented in a way that, you know, schools that want to do right and want to teach this important part of our history have the tools to do so? Yeah, well, um, I, when uh, we signed the bill, Carmen Ayala, you know, the uh, superintendent of schools in Illinois, talked a little bit about the implementation. Um, and so what was encouraging is to see her commitment to implementing the bill, you know, at the very highest levels. Um, and I, I know that the State Board of Education is uh, working on putting together guidelines, uh, both at the elementary level and at the high school level. Um, so that and what what I think they're they're taking a smart approach. They're putting they put together working groups that include educators um, from the Asian American community, um, and they're working on putting together guidelines and resources that will be available to schools through the State Board of Education and uh, available you know on on the website. And then it's really going to be up to grassroots organizations to reach out to school boards across the state. Um, and to provide resources. Um, One of the things we've talked about um, in the Asian American Caucus is putting together a a toolkit, um, taking what the State Board of Education, um, you know, once the the guidelines are released and and doing um, some outreach, you know, really being proactive, reaching out to school boards um, with tools and information, um, readily digestible and, uh, easily um, downloaded from teachers across the state to make this easier. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to require something; it's another thing to provide uh, the necessary resources to make it possible. Um, and of course, one of the challenges, and I think you know, one of our strengths in the Asian American community is that we are not a monolith. Um, you know, Asian Americans now represent over 40 nationalities. Um, and so the, the challenge is ensuring that Asian American curriculum represents the diversity of the Asian American experience. Um, and, you know, that is going to look different, too, in communities throughout our state. Um, I know one of my colleagues reached out to me. Um, I think this was before the bill passed, and, and she said, you know, I'm getting questioned from uh, community leaders in my community. She has a large Lao community um, in her district, and she said, you know, will there be an opportunity for the refugee experience of certain communities here in Illinois to be told? And I said, absolutely. Um, but that's going to take advocacy on the part of organizations in our communities to reach out to the school board and say, okay, so the State Board of Education has provided these broad curricular guidelines and resources. And in addition to that, we wanna make sure that the story of our community is taught in our schools. Um, Because at the end of the day, the TEACH Act is about building empathy. Um, And in order to do that, you need to ensure that people are seen. 
Well, you've talked about the, the diversity of the Asian American community. And I guess as I was preparing for this, I was just astonished by reading some reports about the, even the size. It's 23 million now. It's, the community will grow to, I guess, 46 million in 2060, uh, 7% of both kind of the national population and an Illinois population. Um, what, what, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but what about this community should people appreciate apart from the fact that it's not monolithic? What are the, what are the kind of things that, that are most striking and, and maybe would be surprising for people to see and, and understand? Wow, I mean, I, you know, I think, um, you know, what I would say is, um, you know, we're a, a diverse community with, uh, you know, diverse needs and diverse experiences. Um, you know, it's, I, I think, um, you know, when I was, when I was preparing for this and, and, you know, thinking through, you know, well, what kinds of resources might I recommend to people, um, to, to get a sense of the, the breadth of the Asian American experience. And, you know, you can't point to any one thing. Um, you know, you could you could watch a movie like Minari and and get a you know a sense for um, a Korean family, um, first generation, um, but that doesn't tell the whole story of the Asian American experience. Um, you know, like I said, you know, many Asian American families can trace their roots back six generations. Um, you know, have I. Uh, been here in the United States contributing in um, all the ways that, you know, you know, each one of us as Americans, um, you know, has experienced the country in very unique ways um, from generation to generation. And then, of course, you have, um, you know, the more, you know, the, the, the subsequent to the Vietnam War, more recent um, immigrants from Southeast Asia, um, you know, the Hmong community, um, the refugee experience, um, in, in, when you disaggregate the data, people are surprised how quickly that model minority myth falls apart. Um, you know, I think there is a stereotype of uh, Asian Americans as, um, like I said, you know, overachievers, um, really interested in the math and sciences, um, very good at math. And, and then, you know, you have, you know, when you disaggregate the data, you immediately learn that um, the you know many of the the refugee communities have come from Southeast Asia, you know in part because of foreign policies uh, that the United States advanced, um, have really struggled you know to integrate socioeconomically and have you know faced real challenges, um, and I you know that model minority myth falls apart rather quickly. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, when, uh, you know, when I think about the Asian American community, um, I don't think of any one thing. Um, and, and, you know, I can certainly speak from my own experience. Um, I think one of the things that's probably universal, and I, I would guess, you know, I obviously, you know, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but what I get, I would assume is, is similar in, in a lot of immigrant families, is there's this tension between the first generation, um, especially when you have immigrants that don't come from a Western culture, and the next generation um, born here. You know, I saw it in my own family. I felt um, in many respects that um, my parents came from two different worlds. Um, you know, when I, you know, my, I was, my grandmother, my grandma Gong was a, 
a lion, a giant in, in my family and in my life. Um, she was the boss of the family, born well before her time, you know, born before uh, Chinese women could make, had any choices about their lives whatsoever. Um, but she was powerful and a powerful figure in my life, but spoke very little English. Um, you know, I grew up understanding the tones and sounds of Cantonese, which was the fam you know, my uh, family uh, language, the Gong family language. And, um, you know, I, you walked into my grandmother's home and the smells and the sounds um, were my Chinese heritage. And then my mother's side of the family, um, you know, white working class, um, no one had ever gone to college until my mother um, and held a, a lot of um, prejudices about people who were different and a lot of prejudices about my own, you know, Chinese side of the family. Um, and there's, there is that ingrained tension between um, the immigrant experience and a culture um, that is very different from the one um, that the next generation is experiencing. Um, and, and I think that is, is something that a lot of first generation, second generation Americans can identify with. And I always consider the first generation to be the ones who come um, because they're Americans, they're, they're immigrants, um, but you know, first generation Americans. Um, and despite that being denied to my grandparents um, until ironically, they were allowed to immigrate as Mexican nationals. Um, I find that ironic considering the politics of immigration today that my Chinese grandparents could not immigrate, immigrate or become naturalized US citizens as Chinese people because we were excludable aliens, not entitled to naturalize as citizens until 1952. Um, but because they had come across the border from Mexico, rather than fight uh, or try to defend the Chinese Exclusion Acts um, under the, you know, the 14th Amendment, the government said, well, wait a second, aren't you really Mexican? Um, and allowed my Chinese grandparents uh, a pathway to citizenship as, as Mexican nationals. And um, to my knowledge, we have no Mexican heritage. But I thought how ironic given the politics of immigration today. Um, that that's part of my family's story. And I think, um, you know, in talking to uh, my friends and, and others in the Asian American community, we all have these funny idiosyncrasies um, about uh, our own family's experience, um, experiences here in the United States. And um, I, you know, I would uh, hesitate to draw, you know, any kind of broad brush uh, conclusions because I, I think uh, all, all very unique. Right. Jennifer, we have some questions from people and uh, we have three I'd like to read. The first comes from James from Wilmette. And he said, um, what are the big issues facing your constituents and, and how are you helping address them? Which might be a good context for you to tell us a little bit about the 17th district. I was going to ask that earlier, but tell us a little bit about your, uh, your constituents. Um, so I represent uh, all our parts of Skokie, Wilmette, Evanston, Glenview, Northbrook, um, all of Gulf and a little bit of Morton Grove. And I have an incredibly diverse district. Um, I think uh, based on uh, the last population numbers that I saw, I think the third largest Asian American population in the state um, of any you know, house district, certainly. Um, and so, you know, when, when uh, I'm out in the community, um, I, you know, I said in many respects, I think my district 
reflects the, you know, the diversity of Illinois as a state. Um, and, you know, the, the needs, again, um, vary. You know, so uh, we have a lot of small business owners in my district. And one of the things that I've focused on a lot is how to push out information um, during the pandemic to small businesses about um, the types of um, uh, grants and, and programs there are uh, to help get our small business community through um, a lot of the restrictions that hit small businesses really hard in my district. Um, and then of course, um, you know, focusing on um, COVID recovery and relief. You know, this last year, uh, I learned more about every state agency um, in the state of Illinois than I think a lot of uh, state reps learn in, in years, um, right? So working on helping constituents navigate unemployment issues uh, through IDES, um, occupied a tremendous amount of our bandwidth in the first, you know, six months of the pandemic and is still ongoing. Um, you know, so there's, you know, a lot of uh, COVID recovery and relief um, happening in the district that um, has really put state services front and center, um, helping families obtain uh, relief with housing and utilities. Um, and then, uh, you know, the broader issues of, you know, ensuring that we fund public education. Um, a lot of people say that they move into the 17th district because of the quality of our public schools. Um, but we rely heavily in Illinois on property taxes to fund public education, which is fundamentally regressive. Um, so I've been working really hard in the General Assembly since I've been there over the last three years to continue to push for fully funding the evidence-based model, which is our best um, I hope for equalizing and increasing state funding for public education to reduce the reliance on property taxes over time. We have a question from Jan from Philadelphia. And this, we, we probably could spend another hour on this, but he, uh, and it is actually, maybe I preface it by saying, I believe you're one of the few, maybe the only immigration lawyers in the General Assembly. But Jan asks, is there any practical way to handle the sheer number of undocumented people living in this country? How do we address the DACA people without raising the question of fairness by the general public? A lot to deal with there. So however you might want to slice and dice that question. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, and, you know, and sometimes I think, you know, you have to almost challenge the assumptions, right? In, you know, in, in questions and, um, you know, the, the number of undocumented um, immigrants is largely driven by our own policies, um, where, you know, we have a, a need for um, both skilled and, and um, seasonal labor that drives immigration and, and migration, the same factors that have driven migration throughout the world, throughout history, you know, apply equally to today. Um, and so those same forces, if they're not matched with policies, um, that are designed to, uh, you know, meet the, the needs of the, you know, both our economic need for immigrants um, with uh, the types of jobs and opportunities uh, for people to do so, you know, uh, through um, the, you know, the visa process, you have a mismatch. Um, and we have a mismatch in terms of our economic need um, and policy. And that, you know, in my view, is the largest driver um, of, you know, what, uh, the, the viewer describes as, um, 
uh, you know, undocumented immigrants. And then, of course, you know, in the case of, you know, Chinese immigrants, when my grandparents came, um, you were by definition undocumented, um, purposefully so. And in fact, the United States government very much wanted Chinese labor to build the railroads. Um, but uh, for, you know, very overtly racist reasons, didn't want to give them a pathway to citizenship. So they were undocumented by design. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that, that drive um, immigration. Most of those economic forces are what drive um, migration throughout the world and, and always have you know, throughout human history. Um, but the legal status, you know, undocumented is simply, it's a, it's a civil legal status, um, is driven by policy. Nancy from Chicago congratulates you for your hard work on the TEACH Act and asks, um, can you share uh, with the viewers several of the most critical events in Asian American history that you think should be included in the curriculum? Wow. Um, so, you know, I think um, there, there were a few things that we initially included in the bill that we ultimately uh, removed in the Senate because we wanted to be very careful not uh, to be perceived as giving a list that we thought would be exhaustive. Um, you know, it, it is shocking to me that anybody could uh, graduate from a K through 12 public school in Illinois and, and not know um, about the Korematsu case and the legalized um, internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s, or um, have some knowledge of the Chinese Exclusion Acts and the impacts that that has had on um, the social status of Asian Americans uh, throughout history. Um, but you know, I, I think it's equally important, um, as we talked about earlier, you know, to um, point out the change agents um, in Asian American history, uh, to talk about uh, you know the the case of Tate versus Hurley, and you know the fight to desegregate California schools, um, really led by a Chinese. American family, um, the you know uh, case of Bhagat Singh, who um, worked you know uh, bringing case to to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, challenging these racial classifications um, that have driven U.S. immigration law. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know it's. Um, going to be fun for me as uh, I have uh, predominantly learned about Asian American history through my study of immigration law to have this new opportunity to learn more about the history of Asian Americans um, from a different perspective. I mean, I have books on, on a list that others have given me that I'm anxious to read because I never had the opportunity to learn it um, when I was growing up. So um, I'm going to defer to the educators on, you know, what should be um, the you know, ultimate um, must knows um, in our curriculum in Asian American history, um, because there's just so much there. But um, I'm excited to learn more as, as we go through this process myself. Well, kind of related, I think uh, if you were on a train down to Springfield uh, and talking to someone who's you know, legitimately interested and said, you know, I'd like to know more about the Asian American community. Where do I start? How do I begin? I know the PBS special is just astonishing. It's a five hour series. Are there a handful of other things you might point to as just a way to start beginning to understand the complexity and richness of this community? 
Yeah, well, there are actually, I, you know, I think three books that are sort of considered the, you know, the treatises, if you will. Um, if you were going to, if you wanted to take a deeper dive and, and get a real sense of Asian American history, um, Strangers from a Different Shore by Ronald Takaki is um, uh, considered to be, you know, sort of the, you know, the starter treatise, um, right? And uh, then really anything by Su Chen, Su Chen Chan, um, but she has a book, Asian Americans and in Interpretive History, and, and you know, she's a scholar. So, you know, you can look up Su Chen Chan and pick what you're interested in. Um, and then uh, Erica Lee wrote a book, The Making of Asian America, um, more recently, which I think is a good, uh, offers a good contemporary update. Um, to Takaki's book, um, which, you know, takes a look a little bit at more, um, you know, it tracks the, you know, the entirety of, of uh, Asian American history beginning with the 1500s, but also contains um, some contemporary uh, themes, issues, and, and waves of immigration. Um, and then, of course, I always recommend fiction, too, you know. Um, I, I, I was, I, Struck by the Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston, which I think is an amazing lyrical novel um, that uh, tells the in an Asian American perspective in a different way. Um, and then, of course, the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, um, which was turned into a movie. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. I read the book, um, but that speaks to that tension between generations um, and the Asian American experience. Um, but I usually cringe, honestly, at the way that Asian Americans are portrayed in media. Um, so you have to really dig uh, to find a, a good example. Um, I think Minari is one of the most recent best ones, you know, but of course told by a filmmaker who is himself Asian American. So not surprising, it was done um, in a way that I think honors the Asian American experience. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, for, for people who don't know anything about Asian American history at all, which is most people, I think, um, the PBS documentary is available free. You can stream it um, on the PBS website. I think it's available on demand for free um, and it is just excellent. Um, you know, so that's a, a good, easy place to start. Um, and then there's lots of places to go for a deeper dive. Well, let me ask you more generally. What I question, we have a lot of students watching, and I like to ask our guests the question, and it's a hugely broad question, but you know, as, as people are thinking about launching professional careers, you've had this wonderfully successful career, which is blossoming, of course, but what have you learned? What would you, uh, I know you have some college-age children, uh, you know, when they say, what have you learned about launching a career, making an impact? strategizing about how to spend your time and energy? What do you suggest? Um, you know, I, it's funny. I think uh, it, it's, it's tempting to see a career in a straight line. Um, and I think like many of us, um, my career has, has been a winding road. Um, and so I always encourage, you know, young people, and in particular, my own children to be open, be open. Um, to new experiences, uh, because it is, it's amazing what happens when, um, you know, you, you, you keep your options and your, your mind open to do, to trying something that you didn't necessarily see yourself doing. I never thought I would run for public office. That was not an end goal. Um, I didn't grow up imagining that I would be in politics. Um, but when that door opened, um, it's about being ready to, to walk through it. 
um, and to be brave and then also to be kind to yourself. I think we're often our own worst critics. And so I always tell my children, you know, mistakes are a part of life. You are going to make them, embrace them, learn from them. Um, don't be afraid to fall flat on your face and go for it. Um, because it's oftentimes, you know, when you get up with a few bumps and bruises that you learn your lesson the most. Um, and that that's just the universe trying to tell you something. So um, be kind to yourself and don't be afraid to fall flat on your face. <laughs> well, let me ask you finally, I mean, you, you have this obviously active, busy life. How do you like to relax? How do you unwind uh, when, uh, when you have some free time? Um, well, so th I, that relaxing is not a strength of mine. Um, I am, you know, I probably say I'm self-described workaholic. Um, and so, you know, for me to really relax and unwind, um, you know, has to, it, it almost has to be, you know, scheduled in, um, and I like to exercise. So I, you know, I set aside time to walk, run, you know, get in a workout. Um, and then I love spending time with my children. Um, they're really cool, interesting people. Um, so I usually will just kind of, uh, you know, insert myself into whatever it is that they're doing um, and try to tag along. Um, my, my youngest one likes to disc golf and I'm terrible at it, but I'll go just to spend time with him. So um, I think like a lot of moms, I find myself uh, doing whatever it is that interests my children so I can spend more time with them. Great. Well, Jennifer, thank you for just a really wonderful conversation. It's been great to hear your perspectives and to, to understand more about this really historic law that you helped push through the General Assembly. And I would urge everyone to read up on it because it's an important initiative that's gotten national attention and is, uh, is going to be an important part of our, our history uh, going forward. So, And also, when, when travel allows, we'd love to coax you down to Southern Illinois and visit us in person and talk to students and classes and, and see our community. I'd love to anytime. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you for listening to Simon Cass, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to see new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening, and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.